Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, celebrating 20 years of bringing the outdoors to Colorado radio, here's Terry Wickstrom. Good morning, everybody. You know, I look out to the studio window to the east, and I see blue skies and sun, and I... I look towards the mountains and I see some pretty heavy clouds and I think they're getting a lot of snow. And about every four days I have to change my mind whether we're having an early spring or a late winter because the weather seems to change. And uh, it's been difficult on the front range because the conditions haven't been consistent. We will talk about that quite a bit during the show today, get you up to speed on what's going on. There is some uh, very good ice fishing up in the mountains and very good ice, and we're going to talk about that too, and we'll be joined by several people to kind of go over those things. Uh, One thing I do want to touch on today, and that's the fact that um, Irv Brown, uh, the longtime Denver Sports Talk host, passed away, of course. Most of you know it was in the news outlets. There is a celebration of his life going on today, and I don't have all the details in front of me, but it's open to the public. And uh, this man was, I just want to give my, uh, you know, my my, uh, uh, condolences and, you know, and celebrate what Irv brought to this town. Irv uh, was a mentor of mine. I got to know him really well. We worked on radio stations together. And uh, just a truly incredible man who gave so much to the sports community here in Denver. So he'll be sorely missed, but what a great contributor he was. And we just want to take note of that today. Let's go to the phones right now. And uh, speaking of ice fishing, uh, he's in a pretty cold place right now, but he's not there to ice fish. Uh, Bernie Keefe's going to join us from Bismarck, I believe, Bernie. Is that right? Yes, I'm up at the Bismarck Tribune Boat Show with the Crestliner Boats. Well, I might want to talk. I'm doing great. And if we have enough time after we talk about the fishing up in your Granby area, I may want to talk to you a little bit about trends and boating accessories because there's some things that have really changed with electronics and trolling motors and things like that. But first of all, what's going on up in the Granby area? Obviously, most of you know Bernie, fishing with Bernie. He guides in the Granby, Grand Lake area. Uh, a lot of lake trout guiding, but him and his guides cover a lot of other waters up there also. Bernie, what are you seeing up there? Well, uh, you are talking about thoughts of spring on the front range. We don't have any of that up here. We we are dead on winter. There is no question about good ice if you come up in the hills. I was out the other day. We had 18 inches of ice on Granby, and that's probably the norm for everything up in the area. Let's see, Wolford, the kokanee fishing is really good. Rainbows along the shoreline also. Coming up to Williams Fork, we have some good lake trout fishing. The rainbow fishing is a little tough on Williams Fork, but if you get one, it can be a real good one. I haven't heard much about the pike and haven't heard much about the salmon. Coming up to Willow Creek, we have some really good rainbow fishing. That's off the charts good at Willow Creek with a few kokanee being caught. Not many people targeting them, so we don't get a really good report out of that. Then you go up to Granby. The lake trout are fishing really well. The rainbows, there's a lot of rainbows in there along the shoreline. And, you know, the rainbow bites always, generally it's going to be over with by about the time the sun hits the water. Willow Creek, they seem to be going for most of the day. But Granby, they shut down about uh, 9 o'clock, something like that. And then um, up into Grand Lake, the lake trout bite is pretty good. The rainbow bite has gotten tougher up there. 
And if you fish the interconnecting channels, the rainbows and browns are, are doing really well in those places. Now, in Granby, you said the rainbows were good. Have the lake trout slowed down a little? Um, the lake trout have slowed down a little, but it's still pretty good. If you want to go out there and just catch fish, that, that's pretty good. The bigger fish bite has been tough, pretty much tough all year. It's just not been consistent. That's been the problem. I know you still get big fish. It's just, it's almost like hunting. And, you know, big fish always, Bernie, you do more with those big fish than almost anybody I know and catch more. But for most people and for everybody, really, in all my years of angling, I can tell you that you have to go out with a different mindset and a different set of expectations when you're fishing for big fish. Because it's it's a hunt, and you may be fishing for just a few bites, and it may take days rather than hours. You know, and that's kind of what I'm telling people. I'm going, you've got to picture this as a trophy elk hunt. You're hoping to get an opportunity, but if you, you might not. Um, and that's, that, that's you really, you have to go with that mindset, and then you have a shot at it. What about the, the smaller lake trout of Granby? They're pretty prolific right now. Is that fishery doing well out through the ice? Oh, that fishery is doing amazingly well up through the ice. Um, lots of lots of fish, say fifteen to twenty-one, twenty-two inches. Um, you can get into good numbers of them, and then whenever you're catching them, you always have a shot at a larger fish. And that's that's one of the neat things about Granby. And you know, ice fishing. Some people that have been ice fishing for a while will love to target big fish, same as open water. But a lot of people just want to catch fish. And we talk about the rainbow bite being great, but we're talking about a really good rainbow bite. What we're talking about are probably fish that are 10 to 16 inches, right? And Exactly. And and that's exactly what it is. And you might get some bigger ones, but when you target the smaller lake trout, you're targeting fish that start at about 16 inches, maybe a little smaller, and they're prolific enough where it's no problem with those, say, under 20-inch fish to keep two or three for the pan, right? Oh, exactly. You know, we, we try to convince people to keep them under 19 inches. Once they get to 19, there's not as many in the lake. So if you want to keep some for dinner, you keep those 18, 18 and a half for dinner. Those eat really well, and you can you, you can get a meal for your family out of four of those. Oh, yeah, and, that, and that's a great-sized fish to catch. If you were going to go chase those smaller lakers right now, any tips on maybe where we might find them and what kind of presentations seem to be working? I would end up going out into 50 to 70, maybe even a little bit deeper, Right now, there's still a lot of them on the bottom, um, looking for food on the bottom. And a simple, uh, you know, like a twister tail, some kind of curly tail grub, piece of sucker meat, maybe a small tube. Um, BioBait has some great products out there. And um, put a little bit of, bit, of, bit, of, little bit of sucker meat on them. And then fish near the bottom or on the bottom. But always pay attention to your electronics. If you don't have electronics, just fish the bottom and reel up slowly when you reel up. But if you see them fish start to come through suspended fishing, those fish are eating those. Those are the very catchable fish if they come up high. You know, you mentioned BioBait. They're a local company. They really kind of bust on the scene with some pretty good baits, haven't they? Oh, they have. I've, I've been really happy with them there. They, they got so many different patterns out there, and they got a lot of different colors in them, their DNA baits. They, 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 they work really well. They're scented up very, very nicely. The fish seem to like them, and they're pretty durable on the jigs. And I heard they're coming out with a, a line, or they have, or they're going to really just regular ice fishing baits, even the smaller baits. 
and they're talking about it. Yes, I'm very excited to see what they come out with. Um, the guys who are designing the baits say their imaginations are incredible. They they come up with stuff. You're like, how did you think of that? Yeah. Well, and um, they don't tell you how they thought of it, but they come up with it, and that's cool. Well, my fishing imagination is pretty incredible, too, as I look back at the fish I've caught. But <laughs> <laughs> that's... You know, every fish I lost has been at least 80 pounds. Well, and I try not to tell fish stories too soon because they seem to mature over time. But, you know, <laughs> hey, Bernie, while, while we've got some time left, you're at the boat show. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because I know how important boat control and electronics are to you, and we're just seeing some incredible trends, and the prices are coming down. So when you see people, because you're with the Crestliner Boats, you're talking to a lot of people looking for fishing boats. What kind of accessories and what kind of electronics, what are people asking for? What seems to be the demand and what's out there? You know, the d- demand in, is all over the place. I talk to people who just want a fish finder that are just very basic. They want to troll for rainbows. They just want to know depth. And then I talk to guys who want all the technology they can get their hands on. And it's pretty incredible the range of, that's out there, people looking at boats. Um, you know, I'm a Lowrance guy. We um, make no bones about that. And they, they, they carry everything from the Hook 2, the Elite 2, TI2, up to the new live units. And you can have every option you want on those fish finders. What are some of the options that you really think have helped you over the last couple of years? Uh, the mapping has been incredible. The mapping has really changed everything for so many people over the years. And then the detail on the fish finder. You know, if you're fishing shallow and we're casting the bank, we can turn the side scan on and we can pick out the rock piles from a good little distance and stay away from them, not disturb that them fish, which helps us catch quite a few more. Plus, you can dissect the rock piles a little bit better. Once you see them on the side scan, you can put your cursor on them, see they're 50 feet away, make some long casts, and you can really dissect the rock pile, and then you can move off the rock pile over the gravel to the next one. That it, It's stuff like that that just changes everything for you. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things, and I want to move on to trolling motors too, but one of the things you just mentioned that really, to me, the mapping. I think the mapping is becoming almost as good or important a tool as what, when we first got sonar, it meant just to know depth and if potentially maybe see even some fish down there and then see our lures at times. It revolutionized and allowed us to turn our back to the shore. But now with the mapping you can download, you know, for years in Colorado, we couldn't take advantage of the mapping so well because a lot of our lakes weren't mapped. But that's changing with the everybody uploading maps and, and everything like that. So I think the the ability, like ice fishing right now, Take a, a snow machine or an ATV and put your GPS on and almost drive right to that hump, Bernie. It's just unbelievable. You know, that's how I live. I have a I have a Live 7 unit on my snowmobile, and it's just all for the GPS up there and the mapping, and I can go straight. What I'll do is I'll take my snowmobile, and I'll, put, I'll find the contour line I want to fish, and then I'll drive my snowmobile down that track, and I'll park the snowmobile. Then I'll know exactly where I want to drill holes. I'll know exactly where I am drilling holes. There's no question about it. I don't have to worry about falling off an edge or just wasting any time drilling holes. Once you drill holes where you think the fish should be, you should do better.
Oh, without question. And in the open water, too. I mean, ice fishing, you can't even look as you go, so it's really critical, or it's harder to look as you go. At times, you can. But on a boat, with what those new electronics do, you're you're saving so much time. The other thing it is doing, it's... Uh, it's teaching everybody where the contours are and the little humps and stuff. So you're going to have to be maybe a little better angler. The other innovation over the last 10 years that I think has just revolutionized fishing for me, and that's the spot lock or the electric anchors on the trolling motors. Oh, those things are absolutely incredible. You get out in the high wind. I'm a fan of running my boat and not using the spot lock so much. But I'll tell you what, we snag up, we get a lot of fish on, we do, I just do anything where I just have to not pay attention to the boat. It is so nice to put, hit that anchor mode and deal with whatever you got going on, then pick up your remote and start running the boat again. That is such a nice feature to have. Um, I don't, everybody I know who doesn't have it is looking to upgrade to get it. Well, and what happens, and I know for me too, is that if you're fighting a fish or landing a fish or my grandkids are in the boat and I'm tying a bait on or helping them, you can blow off an area spot so quickly and have trouble getting back on it without that. And then you're back searching, you waste a lot of time. Uh, you know, like I said, if I got the grandkids in the boat, especially if we're like pan fishing or going for small trout, I can find a good spot, put the spot lock on, and I can move around the boat and help them, and we don't get a bunch of tangles and things. But I'll tell you, even Karen and I, there was a while back at Horsetooth, we found some smallmouth up and down a ledge. They were stacked actually in two places. It, the water was high. They were up on top by the trees, but then a lot of them were right where it do- dropped off down to the bottom and a lot of bigger ones. And we were able to put the spot lock on. We started on the top of that and worked our baits up. And then when we quit getting bites, we moved out to the bottom, put the spot lock on, and we stayed there. And we, we I don't know how many fish we caught, big smallmouth just dragging tubes, but we caught a ton of, you know, 16, 17, 18-inch smallmouth. And we didn't have to be tending the boat. You could pay attention because, because the boat was in a fixed position. You were dragging those tubes along the contour, and you wouldn't even feel a bite. You'd feel them pin that like a crawfish to the rock, and it would just get heavy. And that's difficult to do while you're running a boat sometimes. Oh, it's, yeah, it can be extremely difficult. Everything about the, the spot locks and then being able to rerun your routes and all that stuff, the speed control, it is, you know, it's really taken the skill of running a boat out of, out of the equation. And it's just made everything a level playing field. And like you said earlier, with the mapping, you throw those two together, um, it, it's an extremely level playing field out there. You're exactly right. Bernie, we got to go. If people want to book a trip or more information, how do they get a hold of you? Look up, look us up on Facebook, Fishing with Bernie, my website, fishingwithbernie.com, or Instagram, Fishing with Bernie. All right, my friend, have a good Sell some boats. All right, thanks, Terry. You guys have a good weekend. You bet. Bernie Keefe, you're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. And if you stop by at 88th and Washington, you'll know why. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Scott Murdoch. Good morning, Scott. How are you, Terry? You know, I'm doing great, but we're getting a ton of snow up in the mountains, even though we're a little dry down here on the Front Range. So I'm thinking that I probably should load my truck up with some hay and go up feed the deer and elk so they don't struggle. Is that right? 
Well, I think we'd have an issue with that, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, it's illegal, so you'd probably throw me in jail. I don't think that would look good sports, right? you know. You know? <laughs> but um, no, and there are, there's, it is illegal, but for very specific reasons, because uh, it can have such an impact on the deer and in the elk and other animals if you do feed them, and, and it's almost always negative, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, you know, folks mean uh, very well when they feed big game, but it's it's really bad for the animals. Can potentially be dangerous for the uh, people as well, uh, and there's many reasons for that, really. And we'll go through some of those. But for, you know, the first thing people see the deer and elk, and they're starting to look skinnier and maybe not in a, as good a shape. But that's all, that's really their natural way of burning their body mass during the winter, and that's how they survive and how they've evolved here in Colorado, isn't it? That's correct. You know, those those deer do just fine. They they build up their fat reserves over the course of the summer and the fall. And then over the course of the winter, they're burning fat reserves. And then come sc- uh, spring green up, um, they're in a, a good position to start building body mass back again. Let's go through some of the reasons, the detrimental reasons that you don't want to be feeding big game in Colorado. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the food you'd give them probably isn't good for them, right? That's correct. Um, deer, elk, bighorn sheep, uh, even our moose uh, are what we call ungulates. And ungulates are ruminants, which means they have a four-chambered stomach. Um, these animals digest plant-based materials uh, through a process of fermentation uh, inside their stomachs. And so these animals are really well adapted to feeding on natural food sources. And actually, their their gut microbes will change over the course of the year to adapt to both rich uh, foods as well as foods that are, are very nutrient poor, like in the wintertime. And because of that, you could actually sicken them, actually be detrimental to their health by putting hay bales or something out. What, yeah, are, some, what it, are some of the worst foods they can get into? You know, probably one of the worst is, is corn or other grains. Um, every winter, our wildlife officers pick up uh, many deer and elk and sheep that die as a result of some of these artificial food sources. Uh, corn in particular is, is one of those that has a lot of nutrients. It's got a lot of carbs, a lot of protein. And so when these ruminants ingest these types of foods, they can develop a couple different um, uh, disorders. One of them is called lactic acidosis. The other is called enterotoxemia. Uh, both of these can be fatal within 24 to 72 hours, and it's not a good way for those animals to die. Well, and you know, if it and we've had we've had winters in the past. Are you still there? Yep. Okay, I don't know what happened there. Um, we've had winters in the past where the snowpack has gotten so severe that Parks and Wildlife has fed animals in a certain area. You don't like doing that, and we'll touch on those reasons why in just a second. But even then, you guys have specially prepared food, and it's still not the best form, right? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we consult with our veterinarians. Um, you know, they've gone through extensive training on both uh, the specifics, you know, the biology of those animals as well as, um, you know, their nutrient requirements. And so those foods are developed um, in cooperation with some of the, the um, you know, more commercial food producers. And they're specifically designed for deer and elk, and, and they have a fairly low protein, low carb, so that they don't get any of these types of conditions. Um, Some of the concerns that we still have to deal with is uh, some of the diseases like chronic wasting disease uh, and and potentially others in other species. And so, 
you know, it's a risk that we have to kind of weigh of, of, you know, what are the costs, what are the benefits of doing some sort of feeding operation? And ultimately, the overall health of the herd is what we weigh as, as our top priority. And so if, if doing some sort of feeding operation is going to benefit the herd overall, uh, we may be okay with some of the negative consequences of feeding. And so, uh, you know, we don't take those decisions very lightly. And, you know, it's, it's a very complex decision-making process when we have difficult snow loads, uh, you know, or that were real deep or crusty snow where the animals just can't get to their natural food. Well, and what people don't realize is, first of all, you don't even want to do that because you hinted at it. And let's go back to it a minute. Once you start gathering animals unnaturally into groups, you really do uh, exponentially increase the potential for the spread of disease, don't you? That's correct. You know, and, and um, so many of these diseases take time to develop. And so when people have things like corn or grain in their yard or even salt or mineral blocks that they've used to attract these animals. Um, you know, a, an animal that appears healthy may come in, consume some of that material, and maybe get a, a disease from a different animal. Well, they don't see that animal die immediately right at their salt lick or their corn pile. What happens is that animal will move off, and so they never actually see the negative consequences of their actions. And, uh, you know, so it doesn't really hit home with a lot of folks. They see, well, I'm feeding them. There must not be anything wrong with me doing so. Well, and then there's another issue, and we're going to run out of time here, but I want to touch on it too. When you start gathering deer and things into your area, maybe you just, some people don't understand. They're not even doing it because the animal's threatened. They're doing it because they like to watch them. But whether you're feeding them because you think you're helping them or you like to watch them, where there's deer, there's going to be predators, right? That's absolutely correct, you know, and as we know with uh, this mountain lion attack up in Horsetooth this last, I guess, two weeks ago now or a week and a half ago now, um, you know, there is that potential for wildlife to cause injury to humans, and we have had deer and elk and especially moose that have caused injury to humans because of proximity with our homes and, and where folks live. Well, and moose are probably the most dangerous animal in Colorado. People don't recognize it. But if, if we have a saying, and I've, I think you'll agree with this, so in Colorado, that if you've got deer, you probably have mountain lions. Absolutely. And, and, and some and, of our habitat along the Front Range is the best in the, in the nation. I mean, it's, we've got very high densities and a, a lot of cats. Scott, we got to run. Any last comment? Nope, I appreciate it, and uh, just don't feed the wildlife. Thank All you. All right, and it is. It's just, you know, it's an understanding. People do it out of the goodness of their hearts, but they've got to realize those animals are doing just fine, and, you know, watch them from a distance, and don't harass them in the winter, I would say, because moving them around can be stressful, too, just from being too close to them. Scott, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Terry. You have a good rest of the day. You bet. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We're going right back to the phones. And uh, joining us again from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Lauren Truitt. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing great. And I was just talking how I look off to the east and I see the blue sky and look off to the west and the mountains like they're getting a lot of snow, which we really need the water and bodes well for us. But there's a there's probably big game hunters who are, you know, we always encourage them to be scouting year-round, so they kind of want the snow to go down a little, but they've got some other things to take care of, don't they? 
They do. There are some big changes uh, that we need our hunters to be aware of before they, they start the draw process in March. And and that's uh, partly because last year, finally, we got some legislation to in- increase funding for parks and wildlife that was so long needed. We hadn't had fee increases for over a decade. It had been time. There was projects that needed to be done and management policies that needed. And finally, a bill went through the legislature. But there's there, every time you do this, it's going to have effects. No one wants it to does. pay. And no one wants to pay more, but we don't want to lose our access to hunting and fishing and our resources either. So let's talk about some of the impacts to the uh, the big game hunting public. And I think the first would be the fees probably. Yep. So um, as you mentioned, last legislative session, we were able to get the the Hunting, Fishing, and Camping for Future Generations Act passed. We we shortened that to just Future Generations Act. Um, And what that really allowed us to do was to do a one-time increase to resident licenses. So um, that that increase is $8. So if you think about it in in the terms of a year, you know, whether it's a couple cup of, cups of coffee or one trip through the, the drive-through, um, that's that's really what the, the change equates to. So a deer license went from $30 for a resident to 38 in, for this year. Um, your elk license from 45 to 53. And what, what that really does is it allows us to meet the needs of inflation over the last decade. Um, we've been still operating under 2005 um, budget. In, a, in an era of 2018 prices. And so now we've got that in place, and there's some other impacts. Now, if, you yeah. were, if you're elk hunting and buying over-the-counter, um, that's probably the main increase you're going to see is that $8. Now, deer and a lot of our elk, though, you draw for, and then, of course, sheep, goats, and moose you draw for. And because of yeah. the—well, um, with in conjunction with that bill and trying to level the playing field— there's been changes in those. Take us through the changes in the draw system now. You bet. So um, as, as we rolled out our new um, purchasing system last year, and we understand that there were some challenges, but it is getting a lot smoother. We've had a, a year under our belt to really understand the, the ins and outs of that system. Um, this year, what residents will, will see, as well as non-residents, is the, the increase in an application fee. So last year, um, because of the legislative uh, declarations that were on the books, we could only charge $3 for applications, which we heard resoundingly from our, our hunting public was, was far too low. Um, with the, the bill that got through the legislature, we increased the, the resident application fee to $7 and the non-resident application fee to $9. Um, that's within our, our authority under this bill as granted by the Colorado legislature. Some of the other major changes, and all of these are detailed out on page one in the what's new section of your brochure. Um, we also have a great video online. Um, but a, a major change that hunters need to be aware of this year is um, at the November commission meeting, the, the commission has adopted what they call a qualifying license. Um, and and we can talk about the philosophy behind why the commission made that decision, but it's extremely important for hunters to know that that qualifying license is required before they can put in for the big game draw. And so there are a couple different qualifying licenses that, that are allowed, and that is a spring turkey license, an annual 
um, small game license for non-residents, a resident combo license, um, or a or a, just a, a small game license. So again, that's the spring turkey, an annual small game, an annual resident combo, um, or the uh, as well as the veterans lifetime combo. And those are required before you can even put in for the draw. And and those are, you know, they're not big game licenses, but I think we'll get into the philosophy here in just a minute. Yeah. Um, and, and, but the whole idea was to, so people wouldn't just randomly apply for points just to build points knowing they didn't want to draw. One thing that we could mention before we go on to the non-resident is the fact that you used to have to pay a pretty substantial fee to apply, you got that back, but it made transferring funds back and forth and the money uh, just a nightmare. It did, and, and and by not doing that that transfer of funds and that upfront investment on um, on the the big game tags as well as your moose, sheep, and goat tags, um, it saves us almost almost a, a three and a half million dollar price tag in processing fees, um, which again that money now gets to go back into big game and uh, big game habitat and and field, or you know herd conservation. Now there's also Qualifying licenses required for out-of-state people, and we don't—they're very similar. Go through why the quali- why the qualifying license was put in place. So there, there are a couple reasons behind that, and you had alluded to one with the preference points. Um, you know, hunters, and and this is no news to you or any of your listeners. Hunters are at the foundation of the health of our our wildlife in Colorado and, and across North America. Um, we wouldn't have. The, the sheer volume of wildlife or the habitat that we have without the investments of our hunters. And so what, what our system has allowed is for people to just start putting in for preference points. Um, you know, maybe I'm not sure where I want to go. Maybe I can't go this year. You know, this last fall I had a baby, so I couldn't, couldn't get out in the field. So I applied for preference points. Unfortunately, when we just have people putting in for preference points, and I, I'm part of that this last year is, Um, we don't get federal funding match because it's not attached to a license. So we can't get the the match from the Pittman-Robertson funding. Um, It also plays into that you you start having these people that have 15 to 17 points, and it it can drive up, you know, certain hunt codes as well. So that's one area. I I think that the major foundation is the the Pittman-Robertson funding match is if we can capture that additional federal funding, it allows the agency to have an influx of money to then put back into our herd management and our field conservation. So, you know, when, when talking with the commission, the philosophy behind requiring a hunter to, to obtain one of these qualifying licenses is to really make sure that that wildlife management is at the foundation of our hunting opportunities. Well, I think you're absolutely... Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, this is so new to Colorado. And so, um, you know, I'm sure hunters are going to have a lot of questions, but I think it's really important um, for our hunting public to, to truly understand this is not, you know, the agency trying to, to nickel and dime anyone. It's really us trying to figure out how we can leverage the, the most amount of federal funding match and really put that back into what Colorado hunters get to, to enjoy and participate in. Now, there's also been a change in preference point fees, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, so, 
So we we no longer have a preference point fee for like elk, deer, and pronghorn. Um, so you know when you you put in and it says you know my second choice or my unsuccessful draw choice is a preference point, um, but you can keep my money. I want my preference point. So. What we did do and what, what the commission heard after the, the May legislative session ended is that hunters wanted us to have a, a higher stake um, for those, those big three, the, the moose, sheep, and goat. And so a lot of hunters came to the commission meeting. They talked about, you know, the, these are iconic species. We need to make sure um, that, that people are really investing in them if they truly want to be able to hunt them. And so we, we have a $50 weighted preference point fee this year. And, um, and that's and for moose, sheep, and goat? Just moose, sheep, and goat. Right. Um, so that, that, that money, again, can, can be leveraged to hopefully go straight back into increasing herds where it's appropriate. Um, we can go in and do a lot of habitat mitigation. Um, really focus efforts on making sure that those species are are well and healthy far into the future. Lauren, we're running out of time, and I'm sure we've we've piqued a lot of curiosity, and we've, sure. we, we've we've got some people thinking about it. What are the dead? What are the dates for both applying for the draw and the deadline? And where can people find more information on what we've covered? So the the CPW website, um, you know, cpw.state.co.us. Um, it's all over the front page. There's a 2019 fee changes button as well as access to the, the big game brochure. The big game brochure will have all of it. All of your what's new is going to be on that first page. Um, you know, and I think it's just it's really important, especially this year for our hunting public to take some time and go through all of that information. And the dates for the applying for the draw and the deadline. So the, the dates this year is um, it will open March 1st. And so all li- all qualifying licenses can be purchased starting on that March 1st deadline. And then the actual deadline for submission of the draw application and any corrections is going to be 8 p.m. on April 2nd instead of midnight. So all again, right. that's, the deadline's 8 p.m. April 2nd. All right, Lauren, we've got to run, but thank you. I'm sure we'll be talking about this as we get closer to the application again. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Terry. You bet. That's Lauren Truitt from Parks and Wildlife. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Let's go right to the phones because we have limited time with this gentleman today. He's a frequent contributor on both hunting and fishing, and that's Brad Peterson. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Terry. A couple things I want to touch on you real quick. Um, oh, by the way, I know you were giving some seminars last night. Are you appearing anywhere today? Um, I'm going to be down at Cabela's just helping out with uh, the spring classic that has started down there. I'm going to be down there for Rapala. So if you've got any questions about uh, crankbaits, Rapala products, uh, VMC jig heads, uh, swing on down there. I should be down probably from about noon to four. All right. But first thing I want to talk to you about, and we may get to fishing, but it's the last weekend of this, the regular goose season. Um, I know you're going out tomorrow, I believe. I know a bunch of guys. I talked to Kirk Dieter. He's in the field from Trout Magazine. What could people expect if they're trying to get one more hunt and probably be tomorrow? But what's happening out there? You know, we've started to get a few birds that are starting our northern migration again. So we've got some new birds in the area, and they've spread out. 
So the hunting has been pretty good the last week, and I think with the weather coming in tomorrow, it's probably going to change their flight patterns just a little. But if you stick around all day, at some point in time, they're going to fly good, and these are new birds that should decoy well. So I think if you get a chance to get out, uh, just be there most of the day, and it should be a good hunt. Any types of uh, terrain you should wear or types of habitat you should be focusing on? You know, right now, the birds are really hitting the grass or alfalfa fields during the early part of the day, and it seems like the cornfields in the afternoon, and then I'm spending a lot of time actually hunting water. So the river, or if you can find a pond that's got some open water, those birds are coming in and using that middle of the day to rest in. So it's kind of nice. Um, it, it cooperates with your hours. You like to be outdoors, Terry. You, you show up about eight thirty nine o'clock, and you're done by about 3, and you can get back in time to have some wine. Yeah, I, I'm a banker hours fisherman, but, you know, I get teased a lot. Well, I mean, I've, I'll get up early if I have to, and I'll stay late. But I always used to tell people, you know, I spend a lot of time tournament fishing, and if you can't catch fish in the middle of the day, and you know this as well as anybody, you and your partner, Charlie Black, were team of the year for Colorado Walleyes for, two, I think, two out of the last three years. If you can't catch fish in the middle of the day, don't ever be a tournament fisherman. <laughs> oh, that's true. I, I mean, there are... Fish can be caught at any time of the day. Um, the The trick is just figuring them out. They're not going to be caught the same way that you probably caught them in the early morning or late evening days. Uh, you know, Al Leonard told me a story over the uh, the fall there where he was out one of his first bass tournaments. He got just clobbered. Didn't hurt. I think he caught one fish, and he said, "Well, he came in thinking that the fish just weren't biting." And he went to the stage, and this was before they had limits, and there's Bill Dance with a 15-fish limit that weighed a ton of pounds. And uh, Bill came up to him and said something like, um, you know, the fish are always biting somewhere. And that stuck with Al because that's the case. They're always biting somewhere in that body of water doing something, whether it's the high noon or – you know, the the low-light period, there always are fish biting somewhere. You're absolutely right. Hey, so the regular goose season winds down today, and uh, but with, people can still get a fix. We've got something coming up. It's called the Conservation or the Snow Goose People Know It By, and it was actually put in place because these geese have become so prolific, they're actually damaging the habitat that it can't handle as many as there are. So we get a, a flux of them that come through, and there's no limit on them. And how long does that go? And it's a little different hunting, isn't it? It is. Um, they allow you to actually use electronic calls, which is different. And I'm almost certain they now have allowed you to pull your plug on your shotgun. People need to double-check that one. I, I know it varies state to state, so it's always good to check the local regulations. But um, the the thing about it is, is this is the, the northern migration of the snow geese. So they're following that ice line. So as soon as our lakes start losing ice, you're going to start seeing big influxes of these birds coming in. It's it's a fantastic opportunity both to get out there and, and do some hunting, you know, get in a lot of shooting, but also to help a real conservation tool and try and control the snow geese. Well, you know, one of the things, too, people will be overwhelmed almost if you go like to especially the eastern reservoirs here and then out into Nebraska. But if you go to John Martin or some of our northeast reservoirs, you're liable to see 
you you might see zero because they come and go so quickly, but you might go a day when you'll see 10,000 geese. Oh, 10,000 would be a, a, a low number, Terry. There's, there's days up there on the peak of, uh, Jumbo will probably be hitting close to 100,000 snow geese on it. And with Jumbo, it's right there on the river, and so they either go east or west from there and stay along the river bottom. So it's not uncommon to see, you know, twenty to 40,000 geese flying past you. And the other neat thing about this time of year is you get a lot of the ducks migrating back north, and when you're out in the field, they're swinging around you. You're seeing some of the most gorgeous pintail drakes around and you know, they're doing their mating flights, so it's it's a real good time to be out there. The the other interesting thing that a lot of people don't think about is oftentimes some of the best hunts are on the first really warm day after a cold front when we get those real strong south winds that are warming us up because those birds will use that wind on their migration. So middle of the day, with those south winds, oftentimes are some of the best hunts because those birds have been flying, you know, most of the night, most of the morning. They're getting tired. They're looking for some place to eat. They hit the field and then go right either to keep migrating or, or to the reservoir and stick around for a few days. So I've been out there shooting snow geese in February in T-shirts and had phenomenal hunts. Okay. Now, how long does that season run? It runs until the middle or end of April. I think it's the end of April. But realistically, most of our birds are gone by about the 20th of March. I would say our peak time is that last week of February, first week of March around here. All right. I've got about a minute left or two. I know you've been appearing at some stores and getting your goose hunting in. It's been... It's been looking like an early spring for four days. Then it looks like a late winter for four days. Then it looks like an early spring for a week. Then it looks like a late winter for a week. What are you seeing out there in the front range? Any good opportunities? Along the front range, boy, I tell you what, unless you're heading down to like a chat field, I've heard rumors that Aurora might have decent ice. The other ice around up north really isn't good, so you're going to need to just go up into the foothills if you're wanting to do that. But another great opportunity that a lot of people, you know, overlook is the tailwater fishery right there at Chatfield. The river running through there, it stays open. You actually are starting to get small eyes that will migrate up for spawn. And there's a great trout fishery from there all the way down to um, probably down to mineral or so. Um, for those of you that know it, that, that stretch of river right there is a phenomenal opportunity to catch some really good trout this time of year. All right, Brad, we got to run. And if they want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Uh, they can reach me on Facebook at Brad Peterson Outdoors or Instagram at Brad T. Outdoors, or they can give me a call at 303-829-3998. All right, my friend, we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks, Terry. You bet. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.